Welcome to A Transforming Word with Pastor Bill Buffington. This program is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Inglewood. Today on A Transforming Word. We're going to have jobs. We're going to have dominion over areas. There are going to be things to do over this thousand year period. How do you think God determines who gets put over what? It's going to be based on your faithfulness. What were you doing on earth? Were you faithful to the call of God on earth? God says he's faithful with little. I'm going to put much under his care. Those who were, you know, you were faithful in this down here. I'm going to put you over cities and over many things. That'll determine what we do for eternity. So in this time frame, we're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ. It can be hard to comprehend what heaven will look like. In today's message, Pastor Bill will shed a little light on life in heaven based on what the Bible says. Of course, we don't have all the answers, but we do know we'll have jobs based on our faithfulness here on earth. How are you doing with that? Are you in God's word? Are you sharing the good news of his grace, love, and hope? If not, begin doing that today. For what you do today impacts what your life in heaven will look like. Now, here's Pastor Bill in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for today's edition of A Transforming Word. The Bible says that Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years. There'll be a thousand years on earth with no satanic influence. He's going to be bound. Um, that's what we're reading right here. Revelation 20 verse 3 says, He cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was committed to them. That's us. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so there's coming a time where when the Bible talks of us ruling and reigning with him, this is when um, that thousand year period is not like some people think we're going to go to heaven and we're just going to be on the clouds with a harp singing kumbaya. No, we're going to have jobs. We're going to have dominion over areas. There are going to be things to do over this thousand year period. How do you think God determines who gets put over what? It's going to be based on your faithfulness. What were you doing on earth? Were you faithful to the call of God on earth? God says he was faithful with little. I'm going to put much under his care. Those who were, you know, you were faithful in this down here. I'm going to put you over cities and over many things. That'll determine what we do for eternity. So in this time frame, we're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ for this period of time. A thousand years now. And that thousand years called the millennial reign of Christ. It's a different period of time than we've ever experienced. There's going to be peace on earth because it's going to be demanded. There won't be sin, won't be rampant. Satan will be bound. There'll be forced righteousness. And so if you think about this, you know, what happens when there's forced righteousness? For some of us that have little kids, they only do the right thing because they know if they don't, you're going to do, you're going to get them. And so it's kind of imposed. It's forced. Well, at the end of the thousand years, everybody's going to have a chance. They're going to have a chance to be shown what was in their hearts. And so at the end of that thousand years, Satan is going to be released The Bible says as soon as he's released, what do you think he goes to do as soon as he's released? He goes right back to deceiving the nations. And I want you to know, he's not worried about deceiving a couple little people. He wants to deceive at the highest level. He wants to deceive nations. And so look at verse seven and eight. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to and deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog, Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sands of the sea. 
And they're going to be people that as soon as Satan is released, they go right back to him. They leave the righteousness they've been living. They leave and they go with him. And there'll be a final war. Obviously, they're going to come together to go to war with God. Who's going to win that war? Every time. I mean, it's funny to think that, man, it says in verse 10 that the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake. But he deceived people. In verse 9, they all went up on the breadth of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Everybody that came against God and his people, boom, they're devoured. Then verse 10 says, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them and they were judged each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the fire. Here's the deal. As much as we look at the resurrection for the Christian, it's the resurrection to life. We're going to be resurrected into life with Christ in its fullness. But nonbelievers are resurrected, too. Right. They got to come back. They get brought back for judgment. They get brought back to the great white throne. Know that no Christian will be at the great white throne. Nobody stands before the great white throne and goes to heaven. When you go to the great white throne is because your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. And when it says books are open, imagine this, you guys. Imagine that there were a book with every sin that you've ever committed in thought, deed, or word. Every sin. I mean, how big would the books be? How many books would there be? Um, you know, how much time would it take to go through the books, right? But imagine that for the non-believer, it's there, written in the books. All that information is there, and their names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life. And so it's like a judgment. They're being judged for their sins, their crimes against God. And everyone there is cast into the lake after the after the enemy. Some people have this image of hell like Satan is a he's the king of hell. Like he's down there with his pitchfork ruling and reigning and telling folk where to go and orchestrating his minions. Understand that the hell was first created to torment him. He gets to go to hell first. And then the false prophet and the beast are already there. And then everybody who didn't receive Christ but fell for his lie ends up there. So. I felt like it was important to go over that because I don't know that we could appreciate fully the resurrection of life without understanding that there is an alternative that we're escaping. Um, those of us that have come to life in Christ, we're escaping that resurrection to death, right? Imagine someone died, they're in torment now, being brought back up to be judged, to be sent into the lake of fire now, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And they'll never get out. They'll never be forgiven. There's no hope. There's no chance that they could ever escape that. That's the reality for those that die without Christ. Whereas, flip the coin over for the believer, the hope that we have says that when we're resurrected to life, there's no thought that we could ever be kicked out. We're never going to be separated. We're never going to be lost. We're never going to be without God. We'll never be without joy, peace. We're, we're full and we'll be full forever and ever and ever. We have the, it's like alternate sides of greatness, great goodness from God and great awfulness. And Christ has made available to us. Everybody here to say, we ought to, why we ought to just be, it should be so easy for us to just give him glory. It should be so easy for us to just give him praise and give him thanks. Look at what he's done for us. 
right? Not because we deserve it, not because we're great, wonderful, awesome, super people, but because he's a great God. How foolish would it be to reject the offer like that? How dumb would it be to reject what Christ is offering? And just one more verse, if you're writing, no, just write this one down. Write down John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. It says, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And so he says, hey, there's coming that that time's coming. People are going to be brought up and some are brought up for life. Some are brought up for judgment. So back to first Corinthians 15. Now, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And so one thing is Christ comes to rule and reign. Everything that is opposed to him will eventually be put down. Everything. So the enemy is going to be put down. Satan is going to be cast out. The false prophet is going to be cast out. Everything that's ever opposed God is going to be put underneath his feet. Then we're going to deal with the last enemy. Right. And, and the Bible speaks of death as an adversary, an enemy. Do we understand that in God's initial program, death was not a part of it, right? Death was a result of sin. So when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, God created them. There was an intention that they would live forever. They would live forever in fellowship and in communion with God. They were placed in paradise. They were placed in a perfect scenario. They were in fellowship and communion with God on a regular basis. And they forfeited it by eating of the forbidden fruit, by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was through that sin death came. But prior to that, there was no death. And so imagine that for God, when he sees death, it grieves him. Um, some people look at that one verse in, in John's gospel where, where Lazarus died and think, well, how come Jesus wept if he knew he was going to raise him back up from the grave anyway? Like if I knew you died, if you died and I knew, but I got the power to raise you up, like, I don't know that I'd be crying. I'd be like, ah, you know, I just raise you back up. Like, I don't know that it would hit me as grief because I know you're, you're not really dead. You're just kind of like you fell asleep. You'll be back. But in Jesus' mind, as he looked, he said, man, as he saw his friend dead, it grieved him because he's God. He created in the beginning. He was there in Genesis when it all began. It's, it's not my plan. Death is an enemy and he's going to put an end to it. Right. The last victory, the last thing he's going to do is put death down. And so the, one of the things that we have to look forward to in eternity is for the believers. We'll never fear death again. There'll be no chance of death, illness. You know, you're not get to heaven and, and your heavenly body catch a cold, get, get a pneumonia, you know, catch a cancer or whatever. We healed. I think of the people that have physical ailments and maladies and disabilities and think, man, how awesome. I mean, heaven's going to be awesome for everybody. But I know people that are blind. They love the Lord. They never seen. Like how what's that going to be like for them to finally see? And then when they finally get to see, they're seeing in heaven. Uh, I know a young lady that's been, you know, she's got cerebral palsy. She's been in a chair her whole life. And it's a, a struggle and a challenge and a battle. Physically, there's pain and all these different things she can't do. She wants to do. She'll be free. There'll be no hindrance, no ailments, none of that stuff. You know, and so um, moving on, verse 20, uh, verse 26 said that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And that's going to take place. She's going to put death. Uh, death is going to be defeated. Second Timothy chapter one, it says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings of the gospel, according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. But now being revealed by the appearing 
of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so one of the things that the gospel does is it brings an end to death. Death is no longer something that a believer has to walk in fright or fear or terror of. We can now we're not walking around with, you know, death wishes. You know, I just want to die. You know, I think for the believer, we're not supposed to walk in a terror or fear of death. Death is how we get to, to be with the Lord. Death is how I get to the next realm. To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. So I, I got to escape this body. Rather, it's, I, I hope I go in the rapture. I hope it happens in my time frame. I hope I hope I get to be caught up. I would really like to be one of the people that get to be. I didn't get to be here when Jesus was here. I didn't get to be around for the some of the Old Testament stuff. So I'd like to be one of those. But if not, death is how I get there. And so I can't really spend my life worrying about it, running from it, trying to evade it or avoid it. It's death is how we get to the next realm. And I think that's why in Thessalonians, it told the believers that for the other believers that have died, it says, guys, you guys can we're not we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. It ain't like they're in hell. We don't sorrow over death. We'll miss them, but we're going to see them again. They don't want to come back. I guarantee anybody that have a relative that died and went to heaven, if you could bring them back, they'll probably hit you. They're like, why would you bring me back here? I I was in glory. No bills, no sorrow, no suffering, no pain. You brought me back here. I wouldn't want to come back, you know. And so, you know, moving on. Um, Verse 27 It says, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. And so here we're just reminded of the the submission of the son to the father. Is the son less than the father? Anybody? No, they're equal. There's God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. I want to point that out for a reason, though. They're equal, but there is submission because there's purpose. God, the father has his purpose. God, the son understood his purpose. And Philippians, he said he willingly he laid down authority. He laid down rights in order to fulfill his divine purpose. Right. Some of us have problems with submission in order to fulfill God's purpose. And I would just remind you, in whatever relationships you're in that God calls you to submission, right? Jesus is your example. If he could submit, you could submit. He submitted that the father would be glorified, that all things would be right, that the order would be correct. So should you. There are relationships that I have that I'm to be submissive. I'm to be in submission to. And I need to do that as Christ has given me an example. Christ didn't submit because he was less important, less significant or less powerful. He submitted because it was necessary for God to be glorified the best. And so some of you, whatever those relationships might be, it could be a child to a parent, a wife to a husband, a husband to the Lord or whoever. Whatever relationship God has put you in where you to be in submission. Don't be out here being rebellious. Rebellion is like the devil. Don't forget that Satan is the one that rebels. When Saul rebelled against God and he didn't do what God said, do God had told him to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. But he kept back some and he brought them back and he lied to Samuel and said he did do it, but he didn't do it. Samuel said to him, it was a word of the Lord. He says, God does not have this enjoyment in your sacrifices that he would have rather had your obedience. And he says, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. You're rebelling against God, just like witchcraft, that you just wouldn't submit and do what God said. Do So. We want to look at the example of the Trinity, 
right? Everybody had their role. You know, you know the one person in the Trinity that doesn't get any glory? Anybody know? Holy Spirit. That's not what he's for. Holy Spirit's always pointing to Jesus. Jesus is always directing us to the, connecting us to the Father. Everyone is doing their role. Nobody's bummed out. The Holy Spirit's like, man, I don't get no juice, man. Nobody, nobody ever talks about me. You know, and now, you know, Holy Spirit's not kicking rocks. He's fulfilling his purpose. I'm helping you come to him so you can get connected to him. They're all doing their job so that we can be saved. We can know God. We can go to heaven. We can be met by God. We can have an intimate personal relationship. So submission is a beautiful thing when we all do our parts. And so I speak to marriages, husbands, you need to be submitted to the Lord in your marriage. Wives need to be submitted to your husbands in your marriage. Children need to be submitted to your parents in the home because that is God's order. And that is what God will bless. And if your household is jacked up, family's not going right, people can point and blame all over the place. But I've never seen a household that was jacked up where everybody was submitted to the Lord properly. And so in my marriage... I can't be in control of my wife and whether she submits or not, you know, so I got to be in charge of me. I got to make sure I'm submitted to the Lord. That's what I can do. And I would encourage everybody here in your household and your family and whatever, whatever you're over, find yourself in submission. Find yourself in this place where blessable and it glorifies the Lord. So the Trinity is, is a great example here. They're all submitted in their places so that we can be helped. Verse 29. Otherwise, what will now... This is a really controversial verse, and I want to just say this, and, and I'll just read it, and I'll, I'll explain a couple different viewpoints on it. So it says, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? So what is baptism for the dead? There are groups that baptize for the dead. So the Mormons are big on this, and so they, they follow their genealogies real close, and if you know, great, great uncle Sam and Sue wasn't saved or didn't, you know, get committed, you know, then we'll be baptized in their place. You know, there's an idea that, that in that they would be saved. Now, here go two alternate uh, thoughts. I'll give you my opinion on it. You read 10 commentaries, you get 10 different views on this. So I don't know that I'm settling it, but I prayed over it and I'm gonna give you what I got. So one view, and I don't necessarily hold this view, but it, it says that, well, what Paul had in mind here was baptism. And so in baptism, it's a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. So he's really saying that, why do we get baptized? And, and I don't think linguistically that doesn't really work. It doesn't, it just, that sounds like kind of, I'm trying to make this work. The other thought is, and this one makes more sense. Uh, one, if you look in the manners and customs, there was a belief back then. And there was an Epicurean doctrine and belief where non-believers also practice baptism and they would be baptized for they're dead. And as Paul is coming in correcting, right, you guys are Christian, but you guys aren't believing in the resurrection. It fits the context to me because in just a minute, he's going to tell them, why are you listening to other people? How bad company corrupts good character that the Corinthian Christians were being affected by this false teaching, by the kind of the thoughts of people in their culture. And when he says, listen to the wording, right? Uh, look at he says they twice in verse 29, right? What will they who are baptized for the dead, do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead are not raised at all, why then are they? So notice that Paul is calling them they. And then notice what he says in verse 31. And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? And so I get a distinction here where Paul is saying, we, speaking of the believers, we're in jeopardy every hour. We're living, we're putting our life on the lines for the gospel. Why would we do that if it's not true? But then as he speaks about the baptism of the dead, he says they. They, this is what other people are doing. So I believe that he's speaking of 
another group. He's not affirming that doctrine. He's not saying it's the right thing. But he says, hey, why do they do that? Even they believe in, right? Even these epic, even they believe in a resurrection. Why would they do that if they didn't? And he says, then us believers, why are we, why are we living on the edge? Why are we, why are we living our lives in jeopardy day by day? Verse 31, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus for our Lord, I die daily. Paul said, look, I die every day. And Paul could say this. Paul lived this life so on the edge. There was a group of men in Acts. I think it's in verse 20, chapter 27. But there was a group of people that after Paul came into their city and preached, it was a whole group of men that said, we will not eat until we kill that man. Paul didn't go anywhere and not have an effect. He either went and preached and people got saved. Or he went and preached and they started riots. They wanted to kill him. He was ruining their, you know, the, the sale of their idols and everything else. Paul, everywhere Paul went, there was an effect that he had on the people. But Paul said, I live in jeopardy every day. My own countrymen, my own people want to kill me. I go preach over there. Now they want me dead. And I go out in this city. They stone me to death. I get back up. I go back over there. These people put me in prison. They lied on me. They beat me. I'm in jail over here writing to encourage them. His whole life, Paul said, why would I do that if there was no resurrection? Right. And remember, Paul had an encounter with the resurrected Christ personally. So why would he live so radically for God? Paul saying my own life testifies to the validity and the reality of this doctrine, because if Christ didn't rise from the dead and if I wasn't going to rise from the dead, I wouldn't be out here risking my life. Look what he says next. Verse 32. If in the manner of men I have fought with beast at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. Paul talks about a time where in Ephesus where he fought with beasts. And we do know in Ephesus they had the arenas where they would put Christians in the arenas and let them be eaten. Some people think Paul is, you know, kind of talking of the men that have come against him. I tend to think it just says beasts. I think Paul may have actually been thrown into an arena and fought with beasts and survived. Paul said, why would I go through that mess? I mean, why would I go through that kind of persecution? If Christ wasn't coming back, if we weren't going to rise... He said, man, we should just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He said, if this wasn't true, I would just say, everybody go home, go eat a good meal, go have y'all some good drinky drink, and we're going to die tomorrow. We just do have your best life right now. I won't quote him, but, uh, you know, there's a whole mentality. You know, some people feel like we're supposed to have our best life right now. Y'all know that's not true. Oh, that's not Bible. That's not Bible. It's in bookstores, but it's not Bible. Our best is to come. I can't really find anybody in scripture that really went hard for the Lord that had their best life down here. Paul is my hero. And I I look at Paul's, he didn't have his best life. Beat, jailed, shipwrecked, whipped, kicked out, ran over, you know, I mean, lions, everything else. But at the end of Paul's life, Paul said, look, I'm going to heaven. I'm getting ready to get all my rewards. He is enjoying now. He didn't enjoy down here. Jesus didn't come to earth and have his best life now. He left the best thing and came down here to deal with us for 33 years. Look how we did him. Talk bad about his mama, said she had him out of wedlock, you know, beat him, prisoned him, unlawfully took him to court. I mean, all these things and ultimately crucified him on the cross. He ain't have his best life now. Why would we think that following his steps, we would have ours either? He even told his disciples, hey, guys, if you follow me, those that hate me are going to hate you. Get ready. Right. You're going to have some enemies. My enemy going to become your enemies. But we got the victory. And so we come in knowing that, all right, it's to come. So Paul said, look, if it weren't true, if I wasn't looking forward to a resurrection, I would not go through what I'm going through, right? It wouldn't be worth it, right? Anybody here that's walking with the Lord, serving God and enduring some hardship, 
it's only worth it because we know the end result. Romans 8.18, Paul said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It's worth it because of where I'm going. That's all we have time for today on The Transforming Word. Pastor Bill has been teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. This book addresses the idea of confronting sin. Paul knew it was more important to hit the issue head on rather than skirt around it for the sake of being approved of by the majority. This is a hard thing to do when you know that tough issues will cause disruption in a church or even a breach in relationship. But what matters most, pleasing God or pleasing man? It's something to keep in mind as you continue to study this New Testament book. Can we encourage you as you strive to walk out a life of faith, even when it's unpopular? Call or send a text to 310-245-4811. That's 310-245-4811. We'd love to meet you. Do you live in the Inglewood area? Then come join us for worship this weekend. You can get service times and location information at calvaryinglewood.org. You can even find links to stream our services if you're not able to be with us in person. And you can catch up on previous messages online. That website again is calvaryinglewood.org. As we come to the end of our time with you today, we want you to know that we're grateful to have you as part of our listening audience. Would you join us in praying for others who are tuning in and may be hearing about Jesus for the first time? Pray that their hearts will be open to truth and change. Thanks for praying and thanks for joining us on A Transforming Word.